In the closing words of Mark's Gospel, we have an account, as we have in others of the Gospels, of the aftermath of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. I say we have an account of the aftermath because the Bible actually records what happened after he had risen from the dead. Someone rightly said that the stone was rolled away from the door of the sepulchre where Jesus lay, not to let Jesus out, but to let us in to see that he was already out. The Lord rose from the dead, and this is recorded in numerous places in the Scripture. But at the time of his death and resurrection, there were people who, among the disciples, among the followers of Christ, there were very few, but there were some who remained with the Lord. Among those was Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, who both had been secretly followers of the Lord, but now came out boldly for Christ after his death. They took down the body of Jesus. In the case of Joseph, he laid the Lord Jesus with Nicodemus into his own tomb that he had hewn out in a rock. If you were to go to Israel today, and we could go there in our mind's eye, there is a tomb there which is thought to be and believed to be the tomb in which Jesus was laid. It is indeed hewn out of a rock. You can look inside there. I've never been, but friends of mine, family members have been, and they've gone inside the tomb where Jesus lay. There's nothing sacred about that spot in one sense. There's nothing special about it in one sense. It just happens to be the place where the Lord was laid. But outside that tomb, you see the words, He is risen. He is risen. Those who were following the Lord Jesus right to the end, including John, who stood at the cross, his own mother Mary, and these various other women who are mentioned in the Gospels, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Joseph, Salome, Mary the mother of James, they all were gathered in a loving fashion to see where Christ was laid. One of the evidences of the love that these women, some of them had for the Lord, was that they bought sweet spices, Mark 16 verse 1 tells us, that they might come and anoint Him. They thought the Lord was still there. They believed His body was still in the tomb. And so they came very early in the morning, that first day of the week. At the rising of the sun is how verse 2 describes it. And when you think about this, it took no small amount of courage to do it. To visit a grave in the dim twilight of an eastern daybreak would be trying to most women folk under any circumstances, but to visit the grave of one who had been put to death as a common criminal, and to rise early that morning to show honor and affection to one whom their nation had despised, this was 
a mighty act of boldness on their part. Remembering, of course, that the tomb of Jesus was also guarded by Roman soldiers. If you read the last part of Matthew chapter 28, rather the first couple of verses of that uh, last chapter, you'll see uh, that the Bible had made it clear just prior to that, that there were soldiers who were guarding the Lord's tomb. And as you read beyond that in Matthew 28 and verse 11, the Bible records that there were some of the watch, that's those who were set to look after the grave of Christ among the soldiers, they came into the city and they showed the chief priests all the things that were done. And when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave large money unto the soldiers, saying, Say ye his disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. Well, that was a foolish thing to say. Because if soldiers among the Romans slept on duty, it meant instant death. They'd be put to death for sleeping on duty. So that was a foolish thing to begin with. But that saying, that notion that the disciples came in the quiet of night and stole the Lord's body away. Imagine them risking their lives in that way when they had already run away from the Lord. When they'd already fled the Lord. Are we supposed to believe that all of a sudden these men after he's dead are now filled with great boldness? That they're going to face the Roman soldiers and possibly be killed themselves in order to perpetuate a myth that Jesus was risen when he wasn't risen. But the Bible tells us in Matthew 28 and verse 15 that those men took the money and did as they were taught. In other words, they told that story. This is what happened. The disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. And it says, this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. Matthew 28, 15. You know, people would rather believe lies than the truth. The truth was that Jesus was risen from the dead as he said. He predicted it. He prophesied it. You might say he warned them that this would happen. But they would rather believe a lie. But these women came to the grave in great boldness, showing in itself the difference between weak faith and strong faith. These are women who had known the Lord's pardoning mercy. We'll speak of Mary Magdalene in a moment. But they were willing to risk everything to testify to their affection to their Saviour. We read in the Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verses 6 and 7, Love is strong as death. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can the floods drown it. How much of this kind of love to the Lord Jesus do we find in the world today among Christians? How many people are willing to go to great lengths, even at great personal danger to themselves, to stand up? For the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that to whomsoever much is given, the same loveth much. And that was certainly true of these ladies. They felt a great sense of their debt to Christ for what he had done for them. And so they weren't afraid to come 
to his tomb and to show affection to him. The circumstances here are interesting to say the least. Whenever they came to the this, this sepulchre, these women folk, they were thinking about a problem that lay ahead. They were also in unbelief. The fact that they had come to anoint the body of Jesus with sweet spices tells me that they didn't believe that he was risen. They believed his body was still there. That's why they were going to the grave. Had they forgotten that he said he would rise on the third day? They were filled with unbelief, as were the other disciples that they told in the aftermath of this about the resurrection of Jesus. They were also full of unbelief. And today you have people who are full of unbelief, who still don't believe in the resurrection of Christ. Some of them occupy pulpits. There was one, I was going to say famous, I would say infamous bishop in the Church of England called David Jenkins. And he used to love at certain times of the year to try to annoy the Christian community. At least that's how it looked. For instance, at Christmas time, he'd always make a point of saying that he didn't believe in the virgin birth of Christ. When it came around to Easter time, he always made a point of mocking the doctrine of the resurrection. This is a man who was a bishop of a church. He actually, in one outburst, which was widely reported in the British media, said that the doctrine of the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Jesus, sounded to him like a conjuring trick employing bones. Well... Jenkins was a blasphemer. But that kind of satanic unbelief is still prevalent in the world today. But I'm here to tell you that Jesus is alive. And this is what these women discovered when they came to the grave at the rising of the sun that first Lord's Day. But they came with a question on their hearts as well as great sadness in their hearts. Who shall roll us away the stone from the door of the sepulchre? They were in despondency. They were in a position of great discouragement. As far as they were concerned, the Lord Jesus was dead. You may or may not know that Martin Luther, mighty man that he was, suffered greatly from depression and what they used to call in the old days, melancholy. He was often cast down, and often this was a result of tormenting himself about his own guilt, and doubts about his own salvation. Now it's reported of Martin Luther that on one occasion, when he was in such a terrible mood, in depths of despair, his wife, Catherine von Bora, who was a character, if you read her life, she was quite the woman. She was actually fearful of Martin's health and safety. So she decided to do something really dramatic to change his mood. She dressed totally in black mourning apparel, the kind of dress that you would wear when you're going to a funeral. And she arrived in Martin's presence like a grieving widow. And Luther quizzically looked at his wife and he asked, who had died? 
And Catherine answered, I assumed from your behaviour that God must have died, for if he were alive there would not be any reason for such gloom. Martin Luther got the point. God is not dead. He's very much alive, and the risen Saviour and the news of his rising is actually the climax of the Gospel of Mark. It's also the centre of our Orthodox creed, our belief. And it is that which comforts the child of God and is an inspiration to the church in her conflict with evil and in her efforts to win men to Christ. Only a living Savior is able to save. And we preach a living Savior. We serve a living Savior. And only a living Savior can confront and and comfort troubled and grieving hearts. Only a living Savior who is present in our time of trouble can give us strength and power in our time of need. Only a living Savior can give hope and assurance for the future. Not a statue, not a crucifix, not a memory, but a real living Christ. One who is alive and who is alive forevermore. Now as we look at the passage, we see that the first news of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus from the dead was given that first, we might call it Easter morning, by an angel to three devoted women. If you read the other Gospels, you'll find that there were two angels. And I don't want to get uh, into bypass meadow here or go down a rabbit trail. Preachers are good at doing that and I'm good at it myself. But if you want to study something that's really interesting, it is the ministry of angels in connection with the Lord Jesus Christ. Angels announced his birth. Angels announced his resurrection. Angels were present with Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane, strengthening him. An angel came to Jesus after his temptations in the wilderness, strengthening him. And when he comes in power and great glory, he will be accompanied by myriads of angels. Here's Mark drawing attention to the role of these women folk in the final days of the Saviour's life and then in the first hours of his resurrection. If we went back to chapter 14, we would see in the first nine verses there, on the verge of his passion, Mary had anointed him with spikenard ointment as an expression of love. And then the women from Galilee stood by the cross when most of the disciples of the Lord had forsaken him. You can read that in chapter 15, in verse 40 and 41. There were also women looking on afar off, among which was Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the less, and of Joseph, and Salome. And says, and many other women which came up with him unto Jerusalem. A whole bunch of women folk who were there to express their love for the Saviour. Mary Magdalene and Mary, we see in verse 47 of chapter 15, went to the tomb with Joseph of Arimathea, where Jesus was wrapped in linen clothes. And here, at first light, on the resurrection morning, there are three of those devout women who came to the tomb to anoint the body of Jesus. And their devotion to Christ is a great challenge to all believers, including Christian women. 
But here's the interesting thing for me. There were a series of surprises and shocks that awaited these women folk that Lord's Day morning. First, out of devotion, they came to the tomb, but they were preoccupied with something. How are we going to gain entrance to the burial chamber? Because there's a big heavy stone with a seal on it in front of that tomb, and us women folk, we're not going to be able to move it. What are we going to do? And they need not have worried because the stone was already rolled away. A second thing we find is on entering the tomb they were surprised and they were frightened to meet with an angel who was sitting there who had the appearance of a young man dressed in a white robe. Isn't that interesting? If you were to ask most people out there in the community today, what's your idea of an angel? They'll be thinking about something that's on top of the Christmas tree and it's got wings and maybe some other accoutrements attached to it. This doesn't tell us anything about wings in this instance. It tells us that this was a young man sitting in a long white garment. And even though it was a young man in a white garment, they were scared. I wonder why they were scared. Well, they weren't they were, they were scared because they weren't expecting to see that. They went inside the tomb and there's somebody already in there. And it's not Jesus. It's a young man who's sitting where Jesus had been. Matthew tells us, by the way, that his appearance was like lightning and described his clothing as dazzling. His appearance, his clothing were startling to these women folk. But the message he gave was even more surprising and more sensational for them because the angel told them do not be afraid don't be affrighted you're looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified he's not here he's risen he's not here see, look at the place where he lay have a look He's no longer there. And go and tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you into Galilee. There you will see him as he said unto you. Verse 7 of Mark 16. Remember what the Lord said to you? Remember what he told you? Well, you go there and tell them that he's risen just like he said he would. Those words were designed to calm the fears of these women. But the message of the angel here, I want you to know, sets the tone for this whole chapter. There are really three aspects to the angel's message. Number one, the angel spoke with comfort for Mary and the other women. He was comforting them in their distress and their sorrow. That's the first thing. The second thing is that his words were designed to instill confidence where there had been doubt previously. Because he announced to them that the Lord Jesus was risen from the dead even as he had promised. So there's comfort, there's confidence, and then there's a commission. The angel commissioned them to go and tell the disciples and Peter 
that he was indeed alive and that he was going before them into Galilee. This message actually summarizes what happened, in effect, in the rest of this chapter. Now, we're not going to get to all of that today. But I want to concentrate this morning on the great comfort given to Mary Magdalene. When I think of Mary Magdalene, and I look at her biography in the scripture, the emotion begins to well up within me. Because if ever a woman loved the Lord Jesus Christ, it was this woman, Mary Magdalene. Why? Because she had been a great sinner. Now we're all great sinners. Let's not mistake the message of the Bible. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We're all sinners. However, when the Bible speaks of this woman... It speaks of her outwardly sinful life that she lived before the Lord met her. She was a lady of the night, we might say. The Lord had transformed her life. As you study the scripture, you'll find that at one point she had been possessed by seven demons, seven devils which led her into all manner of sin and wickedness. She was a mess. But the Lord Jesus set her gloriously free. And in the New Testament, there are five occasions that we can find in which Mary Magdalene was in contact with the Savior. We're not going to get into all of that today. It's a study in itself But you can look that up. And all the times when Mary Magdalene was in contact with Jesus. By far the sweetest scene of all is that one when Mary met Jesus on the resurrection morning. What a beautiful story that is. You find it hinted at here in this passage, but it's actually in full detail, in more detail, in John's Gospel, chapter 20. And we'll go to there Uh, in a little bit. But what I wanted to emphasize in regard to Mary was that she needed the Lord's comfort that day when she came to the tomb with those other ladies. That's what she was standing in need of more than anything else. Comfort. You see, there was a despondency that she manifested. That's the first thing I want us to think about in relation to her the despondency that she manifested. As far as Mary was concerned, Jesus Christ was dead. Now turn with me to that passage in John chapter 20. And this, of course, is in the aftermath of that first point when she came with the others to the tomb. We we learn this from the fact that in verse 1 of John 20, The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early, when it was yet dark, unto the sepulchre, and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulchre. Isn't it interesting that the other women are not mentioned here? The Holy Spirit just hones in on her. Because this passage that follows is going to be really centered on her. So there she is, and she sees 
that the stone is taken away from the sepulchre. And the Bible says, She runneth and cometh to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. And that's John's way of describing himself always in the Gospel. The disciple whom Jesus loved. And she said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulchre, and we know not where they have laid him. Notice, she doesn't say, The Lord is risen, like he said. He's not in the tomb because he's risen from the dead. No, she immediately jumps to the conclusion that somebody has taken the Lord away. They've removed his body and she doesn't know where it's been laid. Now come on down the passage. And it says in verse 11, But Mary, this is the same one, stood without at the sepulcher weeping. Why is she weeping? She's weeping because Jesus is not there. And she thinks somebody has stolen his body and laid it somewhere where they can't find it. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulchre and she saith two angels, there it is, two angels in white sitting, the one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. And they say unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? She saith unto them, this is why we know she was weeping for this reason, because they've taken away my Lord, and I know not where they've laid him. That's why I'm crying. She still doesn't believe that he's risen. And when she had said thus, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing, and knew not that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? She, supposing him to be the gardener, saith unto him, Sir, if thou have borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. If you're responsible for removing his body, please tell me where it is, and I'll, I'll take him away. I don't know if Mary was a strong woman or not, but I don't know how she thought she was going to carry a man's body away. But such was her love for the Saviour. That's what she thought she was going to do. That's what she desired to do. What's wrong here? She's manifesting despondency and despair. As far as she was concerned, Jesus was dead. And when she saw him in the garden, she thought he was somebody else. She still didn't believe he was risen. You see, she had placed all her faith and all her trust and all her hope and all her love in him. And now he was dead. And she couldn't see beyond that tomb. Remember what Paul said to the Corinthians. If Christ be not risen, we are of all men most miserable. Well, Mary was miserable. That's the misery that she felt. Jesus is dead. One writer said the darkness within Mary was greater than the darkness around her in the pre-dawn of that day, for she was in the depths of despair. Today, men and women, there's a lot of people who don't think that life is worth living. One of the saddest evidences of that, one of the saddest evidences of that in our day is the preponderance of suicide. And the number of people, young people, with the whole lives in front of them, older people, taking their own lives. 
It's become an epidemic. Why do people do that? Because there must be a depth of despair that they've entered that they don't feel that they can get free from. And that's the only way out. You see, life is only worth living when there's something and someone to live for. And the person that she lived for, as far as she was concerned, was gone. So with the loss of Jesus Christ, Mary had lost the purpose of living altogether. Things in her life could never take the place of the Savior. And as far as that was concerned, she was correct. Things never can take the place of the Savior. But she was in the depths of despair. And that despair she manifested by her behavior that day and by her tears. But as well as the despair that she manifested, I want you to notice secondly the difficulty that she met. The difficulty that she met was the same difficulty the other ladies met. And they expressed it here in Mark 16 and verse number 3. They said among themselves, Who shall roll us away the stone from the door of the sepulcher? This great impediment, how are we going to get rid of it? It's necessary for us to remember that New Testament tombs did not have doors. Burial chambers were oftentimes caves. And stones of various sizes were rolled over the arched entrance to those caves. Apparently it was not uncommon for these stones sometimes to weigh up to a ton weight. Think about that, a ton And it was not uncommon for these stones to weigh as much as that. And such a tomb belonged to Joseph of Arimathea. And furthermore, the Pharisees had, remember, appealed to Pilate to secure the grave. What does that mean? Well, it means that they were to make sure that nobody could get in or out. There was to be a watch set there. But also, they said that they wanted the grave to have a seal placed on it. And Matthew tells us, that that's what happened. They put a seal on that stone. This seal was actually a cord that passed over the widest part of the stone and was secured to the rock on either side by a clay seal. And so if anyone would disturb or break the seal, they would incur the wrath of the Roman authorities. Everything seemed to be secure. Jesus was in there. He wasn't getting out. The soldiers did not roll that stone away. The Pharisees would not remove the stone. Why would they? The disciples who were living in fear would not have risked their lives to go and do that. And it would be physically impossible for these women folk to roll away such a stone. So who was going to move the stone? That was the question. Who shall roll us away the stone from the door. Before I go any further, let me just say that there are sometimes difficulties that Christians face, and they're only difficulties that they fear, but are not real. Because those difficulties often disappear as they approach them. You ever find that to be the case in your life? 
I have to be here very honest, very transparent, as I try to be anyway. Full disclosure. I am a worrier. Quite often, my wife will tell you, I don't always articulate it, but sometimes I'm, I'm internalizing a lot of stuff. I'm wondering, how in the world is this going to work out? How will we do this? How will we do that? What about this in the future? What about that? And I'm concerned about it. And sometimes it keeps me awake at night. I used to be told as a little kid, don't count sheep to get to sleep. Pray and the devil will put you to sleep. That usually works. Satan doesn't like prayer. But anyway, that's often the case. Worrying, being concerned about things that I can't do one single thing about usually. It's usually something like that. I can do nothing about it. But I'm concerned about it and it worries my, my mind and keeps me awake. And you know what often happens? Whatever that thing was that I was concerned about, that thing that I was worried about that was upcoming, it didn't even happen. Or when it came to the point, it was already taken care of. The Lord had already gone before me and already had taken care of it. And here's some holy women, they're walking to the Lord's grave and they're talking to one another and they're articulating their fears about the stone at the door. And they said, the Bible says it, among themselves, who shall roll us away the stone from the door of the sepulcher? You know, their fears were needless. Why? Because verse 4 says, and when they looked, they saw that the stone was rolled away, for it was very great. If they had just looked, they would have seen that the problem that they were anticipating didn't exist anymore. Isn't it like that with us? Sometimes our fears are needless. The expected trouble that lies ahead doesn't exist at all because the stone is already rolled away. Bishop Ryle said about that, how often believers are oppressed and cast down by anticipation of evils, and yet in the time of need, find the thing they feared removed and the stone rolled away. A large proportion of a saint's anxieties arise from things which never really happen. We look forward to all the possibilities of the journey towards heaven. We conjure up in our imagination all kinds of crosses and obstacles. We carry mentally tomorrow's troubles as well as today's. Oh, I can identify with that. And he said often, very often, we find at the end that our doubts and alarms were groundless and that the thing we dreaded most has never come to pass at all. Let us pray for more practical faith. Let us believe that in the path of duty we shall never be entirely forsaken. Let us go forward boldly and we shall often find that the lion in the way is chained and the seeming hedge of thorns is only a shadow. Who shall roll us away the stone? There's the difficulty she met. What happened? Matthew explains, Matthew 28 verse 2. And behold, there was a great earthquake. 
For the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. That's what happened. God sent an angel and he rolled back the stone. There was an individual once by the name of Frank Morrison, who was highly educated. He was a, a lawyer, actually, in England. He was not a churchgoer because he was always extremely skeptical of anything relating to Christianity. So great was that skepticism that he decided to write a book to disprove that Jesus Christ was miraculously raised bodily from the dead. That was his aim. So he wrote the book. He did not know that although he set out to write a book with the intention of destroying the Christian faith, in the end he would in fact write a different kind of book. That book, Who Moved the Stone, turned out to be a defense of the resurrection and the Christian faith and resulted in the conversion of Frank Morrison to Christianity. Listen, Jesus is risen from the dead. And no matter about the difficulties that might be in your life or difficulties that you anticipate being in your life in the future, that risen Savior can take care of it. Heaven has the answer to all earth's problems, all of them. And if there's something in your life that he doesn't take away, he'll give you grace to bear it. He'll give you help to go through it. The Bible doesn't say, you're not going to walk through the fire. It says, when thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned. For I, the Lord, will hold thy hand. The great difficulty here was removed for Mary when God rolled the stone away and admitted her and the other ladies to the tomb. And of course, there's a third thing in this passage, and it's this. As well as the difficulties she met, there's the discovery that she made. And the discovery that she made was, along with the others in verse 4, when they looked, they saw that the stone was rolled away, for it was very great. Now, not only did she discover that the stone was removed, but also that the Savior was missing. Now, she didn't realize the significance of it at the time. It caused her to weep. But the Lord was not there. The stone was removed, however, that she and the others might discover that Jesus Christ had risen as he had promised to do. Now, at this point, she didn't believe it. We've already pointed that out. Let's go to John 20 again. And there's a, there's a, there's a progression in the scripture when we compare one Bible account with another about the first resurrection day. In John 20, verse 1, the Bible tells us that Mary Magdalene came when it was still dark. Had she had a sleepless night, perhaps? But it was a great while before day. But then we're further informed from Matthew 28, verse 1, that the two Marys came as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week. And Mark here reminds us in chapter 16 that they came at the sun rising. So, there's a progress here from the darkness to the dawn, right through to the daybreak. 
There's actually a spiritual progression here. Mary had arrived, if you like, in the darkness of despondency, but she stayed long enough to find herself in a full blaze of glory on that resurrection day when Jesus met her. Oh, what a blessed encounter she had with Christ. We left off deliberately in John 20. At verse 15, where she, supposing him to be the gardener, said, Sir, if thou have borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. Now we have what I believe is the most beautiful part of this story relating to Mary Magdalene. Jesus saith unto her, Mary. Mary. He called her by her name. And the Bible says she turned herself, John 20 verse 16, and saith unto him, Rabboni, which is to say, Master. Now she knew the truth. This wasn't the gardener. This wasn't somebody who had stolen Jesus' body and took him out. This is Jesus. She recognized his voice. She recognized this one who had called her already spiritually out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now he's calling her as the resurrection Christ by name, Mary. Her response, Master, it's you, Lord. It's you. He had to tell her not to touch him because he hadn't ascended yet to his father. But he said, I want you to go to my brethren and tell them. I ascend unto my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. I believe that in between the time when he spoke to Mary here, and when he met the disciples in the upper room, he had ascended to the Father, to present the merits of his work to the Father. You know why? Because at that time in the upper room, he didn't just say, touch me not, he said, touch me. Handle me and see. A spirit hath not flesh and bones as you see me have. Thomas, put your finger into the nail prints. Put your hand into my side. Why did he not say, touch me not, for I'm not yet ascended? Because he had ascended. We need to look at the small details of the Bible and think about their implications. The Lord's not talking here about that final ascension on Mount Olivet. He's talking about an ascension that he made prior to going to see the disciples in the upper room. Just like the high priest... On the Day of Atonement, had taken the blood inside the veil and presented it at the mercy seat. The Lord Jesus Christ did the equivalent when he ascended to his Father as our great high priest, presenting the merits of his work before the Father's face in the tabernacle in glory. For these things are a figure. But what a blessed encounter Mary had with Jesus here. What a wonderful story this is. And Mary then, the Bible says in John 20 verse 18, she came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things unto her. Oh, there's no despondency now in her heart. She's not feeling this despair any longer. Now she's in the heights of joy. Because Jesus indeed is risen from the dead. It's a wonderful thing that 
On the glory of that morning, hopelessness was changed to blessed hope. And Mary Magdalene's gloom and despair was turned into glory, rejoicing in the living Christ. I'm reminded of the story of an artist. I believe it was Thomas Kincaid. Some of you will know his work. He once painted a rather gloomy picture. It showed a wild mountain scene. And perched high on the slopes of that mountain there was a log cabin. It was dusk. The sky was streaked with black and grey. It was a most dismal looking scene. And when one of the artist's friends commented on the bleakness of his painting, the artist was not offended at all, but he just took his brush and with yellow paint he put the light on in the windows of the cabin. And oh, what a change. What a change. Instantly that scene was changed from a scene of gloom to one of glory. That's what happened in the experience of Mary Magdalene. And folks, that's what happens in the experience of those who know Christ. Sometimes we can find ourselves in the depths of despair. We can find ourselves wondering where to turn, what's going to happen next. And that's especially relevant to someone who doesn't know the Lord. And perhaps they think to themselves, well, life isn't worth living at all. There's nothing to live for. And we're reminded of that hymn, which says, when Jesus comes, the tempter's power is broken. When Jesus comes, the night is turned to day. And God can do that for souls, souls that we know, people that we pray for. The Lord is able to give them the experience that Mary Magdalene had to be lifted from the depths to the heights of joy in Christ. May that be the case with us all. I pray that we will each one today hear the voice of the risen Christ calling us by name. And we will respond by saying, Master, Master. May we follow him. May we commune with him. May we love him with all of our hearts. May we tell others about him. The risen Lord Jesus. Amen.